Support for Inkslingers comes from the Leon Levy Center for Biography, cultivating important discussions about the art and craft of biography. Welcome to Inkslingers. I'm Jenny Skoog. Today's guest is Robert P. Jones. Jones is the CEO and founder of PRRI and a leading scholar and commentator on religion, culture, and politics. He's the author of four books. He's also a regular contributor to The Atlantic, NBC Think, and other outlets. Jones holds a PhD in religion. Robbie, welcome to Inkslingers. Thanks, I'm glad to be here. So White Too Long reads like a part memoir and part biography of American Christianity. What led to this book? Well, um, I am white. I am Christian. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist uh, in the Deep South, um, was born in Atlanta, but grew up mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, so, you know, it's very it's a it's a personal book. Um, it's a little departure for me. I mean, I typically write with my social science hat on which means that I comfortably fly in at the 30,000 foot, you know, level and kind of survey the landscape. Um, But really this one was a lot more personal um, given that it connects so uh, deeply and closely to my own biography and my own journey growing up in active in Southern Baptist churches. I I went to a Southern Baptist college. I have a degree from a Southern Baptist seminary uh, before I did my PhD at Emory. So it really was so deep, um, uh, you know, exploring this connection between white supremacy and American Christianity. There was just no way to honestly write this book without it being a significant part of it being memoir. What questions were you trying to answer when you started this project? You know, again, it's it was personal, right? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that shook me, I think, to the core was actually um, in 2015 when Dylan Roof marched into Mother Emanuel AME and gunned down nine, you know, African-American people at church, at Bible study. Um, And the more that I dug into that, um, realized that he wasn't just some, you know, random white radical, but he himself was strongly identified as Christian. Lutheran, in fact. Lutheran, Lutheran, that's right. He was an an evangelical uh, Lutheran church uh, in America, ELCA Lutheran. And for those who may not know that, that's a, that's a mainline Protestant denomination. It's not an evangelical uh, denomination. And that he was, you know, been a member in good standing there. He, w- he was highly, uh, you know, even in his prison journals, he was doodling uh, crosses in the, in the margins while he was writing a race war manifesto, right? So these things fit very, he was, uh, I even include in the book, actually, a, a full page re- a reproduction of this a sketch he made of a white Jesus emerging from the tomb, right? And and again, these are just interspersed with this racist screed um, in his, in where he's saying his intentions were to start a race war. I think seeing all of that bound up together um, uh, really was d- deeply disturbing to me. I mean, this was also, um, you know, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, and there were uh, just shooting after shooting of unarmed African American African-American men by police and virtually no compassionate, empathetic response from white Christian churches or leaders. So you've written that white Christian America needs a moral awakening. Can you tell me more about this? Yeah, well, I mean, the other, I I think the two things I set out to do, I think, in the book was to tell a truer history of 
uh, white Christianity in America. And to, to really get beyond, I think there've been plenty of uh, ways in which various confessions of complicity or just being complacent, uh, but there had not really been an ownership of the direct involvement um, in white Christian churches in resisting um, uh, you know, the civil rights movement and propping up uh, and being the really the moral, the central moral tentpole uh, uh, to segregation uh, in this country, to overtly defending slavery from the pages of the Bible. Um, there's just never really been a reckoning for that. So part of it was about telling a truer history that we weren't just on the sidelines, right? Uh, but that white Christians were in the center of, and, and some of the key activists in these uh, movements and providing moral cover uh, for, uh, for, for white supremacy. Um, so I think when I say it's a moral awakening, I, I think first of all, it is, um, you know, a, a kind of confession and a, a, a attempt to tell the truth um, about, about our history uh, to kind of live into a, a healthier and more faithful present. I think it's really important to show how normalized this pernicious white supremacy really is, right? I mean, it certainly has been, you know, when I, when I looked at my own family, so, you know, we're not, I think, I, you know, I say this in the book, I mean, we were not the gone with the wind, you know, like huge plantation owning family, we're owning hundreds of slaves. But at the same time, you know, I mean, our family history is full of pride about all the Baptist preachers and, uh, you know, that are in our family's history. And one artifact I had when I was writing um, was actually our, I, I've inherited from my mother, um, our family's Bible from 1815, right, that tells, you know, like those old Bibles, you turn in between the Old and New Testaments, and there are these uh, family pages of births, deaths, marriages, and it's like four or five generations of things recorded, and extra pages slipped in, to, you know, when you ran out of room, um, but I, I think really understanding that when I did some genealogical research, that even with our basically subsistence farming family, that to tell the truer story of how we got to Georgia, you have to sort of, you have to talk about Native Americans being forcibly removed from the land uh, in order to make these neat little 200 square acre plots that the, the government was handing out via a lottery system to white settlers coming uh, really up from the upper seaboard. Um, and you have to even, you know, I, I discovered my, my six great uncle's um, estate settlement uh, that has, uh, you know, uh, listed every item in their estate when he died. Um, and among them are um, four enslaved people. Um, and, and, and he was not a wealthy man. I mean, his, if you translate the, the, um, the amount of his estate, it was only $50,000 in today's dollars, right? So that's after you, you sold everything. So it's not someone who held vast amounts of wealth. And more than two thirds of that wealth was held in these human beings uh, that, that he owned. I mean, so that tells you, even for somebody who's really just a slightly more than a subsistence farmer, on 200 acres of land, that even to make that life work, um, it had to be done with enslaved labor, um, you know? And so seeing, and seeing those, they were people named on the page, right? I mean, it's like uh, a woman named Naomi, $475, you know, like listed like that. I mean, just seeing that on the page and the original handwriting uh, through digitized, you know, documents that are available today, I think brings it home uh, to, again, you know, uh, just how, how close at hand um, these stories are. This book goes back, like, way back in time and traces the history of racism in white American Christianity. So how did you decide where to begin your story or your narrative? 
Well, you know, I tried to make a, a lot of decisions based on um, kind of hewing fairly close to my family story, right? So as far back as I could track it. And um, so, you know, I can track it back fairly far, um, but, but I, both in terms of location. So I stayed pretty close to Mississippi, Georgia, Virginia, places where my family has connections. And, and that was really a decision about how to tell a coherent story. But again, I think, you know, had my family been in Tennessee or Kentucky, I, I mean, I think I could have told a very similar story, right? Um, I don't think there's anything in particular about that. But, but as a writer, that was one of the decisions I made was, okay, one way I can frame this story is to keep it pretty close to my family's history and make it very thick um, there. And with just the knowledge that you could multiply this story by a thousand, right? Across very, a lot of different uh, locations. Do Southern Baptists only have this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's one of the things that my story, uh, or one danger I think that my story um, may pose here because it is a deeply Southern story. Um, and so, you know, yes, yeah, so Southern Baptists uh, may have the most overt story to tell given that the denomination was literally founded uh, in 1845 to be the denomination where slavery and the gospel could be compatible, right, in, in Christianity. Uh, uh, the other, other denominations split as well, the Methodist split, but here's the thing, I mean, that is, it's not just the Baptists who split, the Methodists split in the same year, 1845, um, and the Episcopalian split, the Presbyterian split, the Lutheran split, I mean, so it's really every major denomination splits over this issue of, of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, in the country. Um, and, you know, I also show in the, in the contemporary public opinion data where I bring it up to the present, that that legacy is still very much with us, not just among white evangelicals in the South, but among mainline Protestants like Lutherans or uh, Episcopalians in the, who are more numerous in the Midwest or the Northeast, and, and even among white Catholics. I mean, this was actually one of the surprises uh, to me, that even among white Catholics who have their own immigration story, their own history of being discriminated against, um, that even there, um, this, uh, these attitudes around white supremacy and particularly denying systemic racism uh, against African-Americans is pretty strong. It, it's, it's nearly as strong as it is among evangelicals, and it's as strong as it is among white mainline Protestants in the country. So no, it's not just an evangelical problem. It's, it's white Christianity writ large. What archives did you visit in researching this book? Yeah, you know, luckily a lot of stuff was available online, um, but one of the more interesting uh, journeys that I made was to Richmond um, uh, and, you know, the former capital of the Confederacy. Mm. Um, so I spent some time uh, there, various museums, uh, and but one that I, I spent a day, <clears throat> excuse me, in the um, headquarters of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Ooh, um, tell me about and that. And so digging, you know, physically digging through the archives, um, get mm. to make an appointment, and they lead you back to this back room and you can access their their archives. Um, it was a really interesting um, experience uh, there because they're, they, you know, they kind of get a nice collection, but they also have not only uh, like Confederate veterans journals from 150 years back, uh, but they, but they also have, uh, you know, access to Christian publications, um, you know, that were you know, like a place called the Christian Index, which is out of Georgia, um, that would kind of regularly mix kind of lost cause Confederacy um, it, with Christianity um, in, in those pages. And, and you could also see places where churches were helping to host, uh, you know, big uh, events around the standing up of a new memorial to the Confederacy. Uh, many of these happening not during the Civil War right after, but in, in the 20th century, you know, not uh, much later 
um, as efforts to really uh, prop up the ideals of the Confederacy long after the war, you know, had been settled. How did you decide, like, how to piece this book together? Like, how did it come together? Yeah, um, well, you know, I, again, I think because once I decided to um, write this as part memoir, it actually made it a lot easier um, to, because that was a thread that I tried to weave through. Um, and, and I did try to do it that way, right? Not just have, okay, chapter one is the memoir chapter, and then, you know, chapter two is the data chapter. Um, but I did try to weave the story through. Um, and, and I think in terms of the writing, that took a little bit of thought to kind of figure out how that works across um, the chapters. But, you know, I also um, tried to think about structuring the book around my own journey, I think, um, in some ways. So, you know, the first chapter I titled Seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, um, because I think just kind of becoming aware, right, of the problem is kind of part of the way in. Um, uh, the next chapter is called Remembering, right? So where I kind of talk about um, the history and kind of, so I kind of backfill, right, some of the history. Um, and then uh, there's a chapter on believing, which is about the theology, a chapter on uh, marking, which is about monuments, right? So I, I kind of tried to just, in some ways, it's um, almost like a little kaleidoscope, just kind of tilt, tilting it, giving you a new angle in of kind of seeing different ways that this has manifested itself from the physical landscape that we live in to the very structure of our theology that we practice inside uh, of our churches and how all of this kind of is, a, is of a piece. Um, and then finally, you know, um, the, I kind of feel it builds up to a data chapter and, and I did, so, I, so it's a popular book, so I didn't want to overwhelm people with data, um, but I did have one chapter where I wanted to say, okay, now that we've kind of seen this history, looked at the kind of cultural landscape, how is this still with us today? Um, and then the last chapters are really about where do we go from here? Um, so I, th I feel like it kind of has a climb up the mountain and, you know, a little bit on the way down uh, structure to it. But it kind of mirrors my own journey of uh, kind of coming to awareness, which I think in, in some ways is what the book's about. So what impact has this book had on your denomination? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, what has happened with um, sort of Baptist as a whole, right, split in the Civil War, um, Southern Baptists and the Northern Baptists, by the way, have never reconciled. I mean, they, they continue today to be the American Baptist uh, churches in the USA, which is kind of still above the Mason-Dixon line for the most part, and the Southern Baptist Convention, which is that Southern is literally there to mark the split over slavery in, in 1845. Uh, but there have been some kind of splits, um, even from Southern Baptists uh, in the last you know, few decades, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the Alliance of Baptists have basically are offshoots of, of that of that group, as really as it's become more and more conservative, and um, and and so uh, there has been a lot of uptake among the Southern Baptist uh, side of things, but among the CBF and the Alliance of Baptists, um, there's I know there's book clubs operating. I've spoken to a number of churches, uh, you know, in those denominations. So I think the conversation um, is is happening uh, slowly, and I think that you know. More than anything else, I mean, I, I write about this at the end of the book, that I do think this kind of transformation is going to have to come from the bottom up, um, like more denominational statements or pronouncements aren't really going to get us there. So so these local, kind of courageous local pastors, churches taking these things up, and, and then also taking them up in partnership, I think, with, uh, so, so I think there's important work to do for white, kind of predominantly white congregations uh, but at some point that has to be connected to a broader conversation with other 
African-American congregations and others in their community, people who don't look like them. Uh, so I think it's kind of both. Um, but so I, I'm pleased to say that, you know, I, I'm at least getting wind of this happening, you know, in, in a lot of local churches. So what impact has this book had on your relationships with your family and friends? Well, you know, like many uh, uh, folks, especially who grew up in the South, um, my Facebook page is a really divided uh, uh, news feed. And, um, in, in, you know, my, my, my extended family, um, you know, votes on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, so there's, there's certainly all of that. Um, I, I one little anecdotal story. Um, my, so I do credit my parents really for um, giving me, I think, the gift as a kid of some critical distance. Um, they weren't very, very political, um, but they did make very distinct efforts at um, cutting off, I think, the just overt racism that was in just the water, right, in southern Georgia, where, where their extended, you know, family, where my extended family is from, from our, from my brother, my sister, and I. I mean, that, they made some real efforts at, at creating that, and I think that actually was one of the gifts that even gave me the ability to have some critical distance um, as I grew, you know, older into an, an adult. Um, but I was still a little nervous about sharing the book with them. Um, and in fact, um, I made the decision to not share it until it was completely done. Um, and, and part of that was, I just wanted to kind of write the story as best I, I could. Um, and, and, and honestly, part of it was, I would be worried that I was gonna be tempted to change something if they were unhappy uh, with it. And I think that's one of the, trying to find that line when you're writing memoir, right? With, between like, what do you owe mm. your family? What do you mm. owe the story? Um, how can you tell the truth without hurting people you love? You know, like um, those are really thorny questions. I think everybody has to wrestle with for themselves. Um, but, you know, I, it, it sparked more. I, I, one thing I'll say is it sparked more conversations with my parents and, and some that I'm, that we may have never had ever, right? Had, had we not just, started somewhere. And so, so I think that's part of it too. Mm. I'm not talking about telling stories that, that, um, you know, I thought I knew all the family stories. Um, it turns out there were a couple, one, one, for example, that I found out it's not in the book, uh, because it only came out, um, when I was talking to my parents after they had read it, um, was I write in the book about this practice in the 1960s of white churches across the South, particularly, um, who were wanting to prevent African-Americans from attending their services would post like a deacon out on the front steps to head off any African-Americans. So it was almost like deacons as bouncers, right? At the front of the church to Whoa. prevent people from coming in. And, and I, I found out that, uh, that my grandfather had played that role um, at, a, at a Baptist church in, in Macon in the 1960s, that he was ex-Navy and, you know, kind of a scrappy guy. And um, he and some other folks, would be other men would be stationed out there just to make sure um, no one attempted to integrate the sanctuary. You seem to be sort of this regular talking head on all the major networks when it comes to American Christianity and this issue of this white supremacy problem. What has that been like to be that person? Um, daunting, <laughs> I think, um, a little bit. Um, yeah, no, it's been, I mean, and gratifying. I mean, it's been, because I, I do think that too often the, yeah, the religion angle just on stuff like this does get missed. Um, and so I think continuing to hold this up and say, look, if we're looking at um, how we've gotten ourselves into this place, right, um, uh, we have to reckon with uh, not just white supremacy as if it exists in some box, 
um, you know, not connected to anything else. But we have to deal with, um, you know, the other term that's gotten a lot of play is, is uh, Christian nationalism. So I think my, my, uh, my, my argument all along has been like, look, it's not just Christian nationalism, it's white Christian nationalism that is really the problem that we're dealing with um, and white supremacy at the core um, of that. Um, but, you know, it's been, I, I've been happy to be there, happy to kind of play that role and kind of helping, to, helping us to, you know, reckon with um, the full set of forces that uh, are in front of us and, and not kind of just, the temptation I think is just to make it about radical white supremacists. Everybody thinks about that as the KKK um, and not about the people sitting next to them in the pew. Um, and I, I think we've got to really get beyond that way of thinking uh, that really protects all of us from taking this seriously and think a lot more about how white supremacy has really made it into our churches. And, and in fact, not just made it into our churches, but has been present all along. It's been a presence we have failed to evict uh, from our churches is probably the better way of thinking about it. I would say one of the most clarifying quotes in this book is white Christianity has been the primary institution legitimizing and propagating white power and dominance. That to me spoke volumes, right? Yeah, was, there were a few times, and I think I when, I when I wrote something and I would stare at it on the screen and think, okay, I think that's right. Could that possibly be true? Yes, that's true, you know, um, because, it, you know, you get it on the page and sometimes you even surprise yourself, I think, at what you've just written. You're kind of in the flow and like this is the conclusion. Um, one other statement like that was when I was summing up the research part of the book um, and tried to kind of make it very, very plain. Um, you know, I came to the, I wrote a sentence that said something like um, if you were recruiting for a white supremacist group uh, uh, midday on a Sunday, uh, you'd be better off hanging out in a church parking lot uh, uh, than you would approaching whites sitting out Christian services in a coffee shop. Um, and But that's what the data showed, right, is that, that whites who are affiliated with a Christian church are more likely to hold racist attitudes than those who do not, uh, who are not connected with, with Christian churches. And that was another sentence where I just kind of stared at it. and was like, okay, is that, that sounds pretty radical, but is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. So what questions were you trying to answer in your first book, The End of White Christian America? Yeah, so that book is um, much more demographics and kind of social science, uh, uh, still written for a popular audience. But, you know, it's what I was trying to figure out is really uh, why all the sort of apocalyptic hand wringing, right, from white Christian groups in the country. Um, and and this, it was written um, prior to the rise of Trump, right? So uh, it, it came out in 2016, but that meant that, you know, the manuscript was all done before Trump really even hit the scene. So it's not really a book about Trump, but it turned out to really, I, I think, explain a lot about the stage onto which he walked, um, right? That this, this, because there was this kind of visceral, sound, all, all of the sound bites that Trump really used throughout his, his, um, his presidencies, many of them hardly changed, right? He would say something like, we're losing our country. Um, you know, if you don't vote for me, America, as you know, it will be over. Like he said that on January 6th, um, right? Um, that that uh, America, as you know, it will be over um, if you don't stop this, this, this steal of the election. Um, you know, so it was the same drumbeat. And so if you really began to interrogate, so who's the we he's talking about there? Who's the, who's the us? Who's the our? All those pronouns, who do they refer to? Mm -hmm. Right. And it became just so very clear that he would those were referring to white Christians right in the country. So in many ways, his slogan, Make America Great Again, 
was really, I think, I still think the most powerful word in that slogan was the last word again, right? Because it harkens back to this nostalgic view. Um, and it let me kind of argue that, um, that white Christian voters had really moved from uh, being, and, and maybe Trump, one role he did play was transforming them from being, you know, these self-described quote unquote values voters, which is never quite true, but that was their brand, right? Um, but, but really they dropped that and, and with, with Trump and, and really began to think of themselves, I think as I, I characterize them as nostalgia voters, right? Voters who were really hearkening back to a previous time uh, in the country. One of the things I did have in that book that's made one of the clarifying stats that has remained true is uh, one of the biggest dividers and it turns out predictors in the 2016 election for Trump uh, was a question about um, whether America, American culture and way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s. Mm. Um, and that question divided the country right in half. Um, mm. Equal numbers said it's changed for the worse, equal numbers said it's changed for the better, but the two political parties were mirror opposites of each other. Two thirds of Democrats thought the ch country changed for the better since the 1950s. Two thirds of Republicans thought mm. it changed for the worse. Uh, but there was no no groups thought that more than white Christian groups thought it would change for the worse since the 1950s. Mm. And so if you put that together with the demographic changes in the country, and that was the other thing that book laid out, um, was that we had um, crossed from being a majority white Christian country, demographically speaking, to one that was no longer a majority Christian country. So if you go to 2008, 54% of the country was white and Christian. Uh, when I wrote uh, The End of White Christian America, that, that number had dropped to 47 percent by 2014. So we had actually crossed the threshold before Trump enters the stage. And I think a lot of the angst about the changing demographics of the country with white Christians slipping from being this majority was part of the big dynamic that Trump tapped, right? That, that, um, that uh, if you vote for me, I will, he, he literally said, I will restore power to the Christian churches. Um, you know, we'll bring the country back to where you all were a majority um, politically, culturally, and all that as they felt themselves kind of slipping uh, from that place of, of power. Tell me about this organization that you founded, PRRI. Yeah, so we are we we were founded in two thousand nine. So we just finished our tenth year um, last year. Happy to say, um, but we are a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, research organization uh, that specializes in conducting research at this intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Um, we do primarily public opinion research um, and demographic track, tracking of changing religious demographics um, across the country. We interview, you know, upwards of 100,000 people a year um, ac across, you know, uh, 10 or 12, depending on the year, uh, public opinion surveys uh, and across a whole range of issues. But our, our core areas that we um, have done the most work in are um, really where there are these kind of cultural fault lines in the country. So we do LGBTQ rights, uh, we do reproductive health and rights, um, we do immigration uh, attitudes um, and uh, attitudes around pluralism and diversity um, and, and the kind of changing demographics uh, of, of the country and, and, and increasingly also on uh, racial justice um, issues um, as well. What's your writing process like? Um, I am a kind of methodical um, and slow writer, um, so I, I've, um, I've gotten faster, but, um, but I am a, a slow writer. Um, I tend to also need bigger blocks of time. That's kind of what I found. Like, I, I don't do well. Um, it takes me a, a while to get the pump primed, um, so I, I, I find that I need a good 30 minutes just to get my head in, back into it. Um, I do, I, so um, I try to kind of write in 
uh, like for the, for this last book to be really practical about it, I tried to find like 10 day blocks. Well, um, um, cause one of the challenges I'm running an organization, uh, that has to kind of keep running, uh, at the same time. So I can't just take like, I don't have a summer, um, like an, like an academic does. So I had to kind of create some space. Uh, luckily our board gave, gave me some sabbatical time to kind of create these, um, spaces, but I would try to find like 10 days, um, and I would just disappear. Um, so I would, uh, go up to Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, hole up in, you know, a kind of one bedroom little cabin and just try to write. Um, and luckily my wife is also an academic. Um, so she is my like first and best editor. Um, and in this last book, I mean, the way I would write is I would try to, I would try to get to a thousand words a day. Um, oh, wow. And I would, okay. and so I would get up in the morning, I would resist the urge to edit. I would write from like eight to one. Um, I would, grab lunch, walk, take a walk, come back, edit for a few hours in the afternoon, but just try to put a thousand words on the page between eight and eight and one, do some light editing in the afternoon, send it to my wife by six. And then she did the yeoman's work of turning around edits to me um, that evening. And we'd get on the phone at 11 and talk them through. Um, and I would do my best to put them in before I went to bed um, so that I could start new the next day. Um, so that I would try to write you know, eight to 10,000 words in those 10 day spurts. And then I found about six, six of those blocks um, to do that and to get to about a 60,000 word um, book. Uh, but I do find that I, I have to kind of, it takes me a while. So I need these bigger blocks of time. I'm not, I'm not good sort of parachuting in, you know, and trying to write a few paragraphs and parachuting back out of it. So how do you celebrate the completion of a book? Yeah, it's always a little anticlimactic, you know, because I, I think especially now that everything's all digitized, you know, my, my first book, I actually remember shipping paper, um, you know, off um, and, and most of it's digitized, although the last uh, page proofs, we, we still actually do hand by hand. Um, so, I mean, I literally from the publisher got uh, a stack of paper just for the last round, a stack of paper. Um, it had been marked up by the copy editor in a, a kind of regular lead pencil the editor had added marks in red pencil uh, and they sent me a green pencil. Um, so I would literally mark up the pages and ship them and ship them back. And so there was some, at least, at least that provided on the last step, uh, you know, something that felt like it left my world and went out into the world um, uh, there. But, you know, I mean, I celebrate with family for the most part. Um, to me, the, the big thing is, is seeing, um, the galley proofs that actually have a, a at least a draft cover because so, then it's an object that feels like it's in the you know something that's in the world that I think is where it feels the most real uh, to me is getting that first galley proof the bound galley proof with a kind of you know mocked up cover um, on it um, that's that's usually a few months you know before the before the book but I think you know go out to dinner um, just kind of celebrate talk to a few people on the phone that kind of thing nothing too okay. fancy what are you working on next um, so, you know, some smaller writing projects, the next, um, I think book out the door, the bigger project is, um, it's actually going to be, um, a resource book that kind of follows out of this one, um, that is the story of, um, white mass racial violence, um, between, um, 18, you know, reconstruction in the 1930s. Um, so because there, there's been the work on these accounts of individual lynchings, uh, EJI's uh, Equal Justice Initiative down at Montgomery's and some really fantastic, amazing work on this, other places. But there, I, in doing the research, I realized there were these events where not just one or two or three people were lynched, 
but um, hundreds in some cases, like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Rosewood, Florida. Um, uh, these events were like, and, and it wasn't, it was, you know, roving bands of white people, like by their neighbors, right? So not by the KKK, but by their neighbors. Um, roving bands of white people killing hundreds of African-Americans in some cases. And I, I've, uh, so, so this book is gonna have, um, and this tells you something that I was able to find 10 different cities, 10 different states um, to tell these stories. And part of the, the goal is to kind of create a kind of um, memory, vocabulary and literacy around so that, you know, when you, when you say 9-11, everybody knows what you're thinking. These days, I think you say Charlottesville, I think a lot of people know you know what you mean by that the you know, kind of riots and or the yeah the rioters in, in 2017 the white supremacists marching in Charlottesville in in 2017 um but I I, I think one goal of this book will be it'll be like a, a primer basically so every chapter is a city um and just has one name so Tulsa Rosewood Slocum um and the idea to kind of create you know a collective memory around these events so they can be commit um commemorated um, and, and become kind of part of mainstream history. They've really been swept under, under the rug. And again, the goal I think is to realize like, look, this is not, these were not just extremist groups, but I mean, these, these events, you know, travel deep into the fabric of our communities and there's just never really been any serious reckoning with, with, with that piece of our history. What do you do for self-care? Yeah, you know, um, I have to say, um, I was pretty lame on this uh, prior to the last year uh, when everything shut down. Um, so, you know, uh, DC at least where I live is uh, fairly walkable. So, you know, I would walk to the Metro and I would walk to my office. I would take a point of walking the escalators instead of riding, um, but not a lot. But this last year I found that I needed to do a lot more of that. Um, and I think part of it has been the heavy subject material of the research, you know, kind of takes its toll um, uh, and, and, you know, as you're kind of facing, um, just how appalling, uh, some of these stories are and how close to home, uh, they are, um, I think it, I've found I've needed some, so I, I, this past year taken up, uh, cycling, um, and Ooh. that got me outside, um, you know, into, and luckily we've got some great, you know, road biking trails around DC. Um, so I put, um, uh, 2,500 miles on my bike last year and, um, and, uh, on on look, trying to up it a little bit this year so yeah it, it was it kept kept me sane well Robbie it's been an honor speaking with you really a true honor speaking with you um thank you so much for sharing your insight and your writing process and all the things well thank you no it's been a great conversation we'd like to thank Robert P. Jones for being on the podcast you can follow Robert on Twitter at Robert P. Jones do you have a question, comment, or want to suggest someone for a future episode? Tweet us at Inkslingers2 or email us at inkslingerspodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram to see photos of today's guest, and don't forget to visit our website at inkslingerspodcast.com. Inkslingers is written and produced by Jenny Skoog and Sierra Holt. Help with sound design and editing comes from Eric Farley. Special thanks to the Leon Levy Center for Biography for their support. Our music is Dub Feral by Kevin McLeod.